choir for that, and God makes no mistakes, and uh, the fact that we're here together is no mistake today, the fact that we're studying His Word together, we've just completed 1 John, and in wrapping this up, looking at the entirety of this letter, and, and all the time that we put into this, folks, you're changed people. You are changed people. There's no getting around that. In fact, we know that God's Word does not return void. Listen to Isaiah the prophet as he reminds us, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will not return void. It will not return without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Amen? Well, looking over this, this entire epistle, this letter of John, you know, it's just, it's just impossible to not emphasize and even overemphasize uh, the importance that John places on the understanding of Jesus Christ, especially as being God incarnate, God who became flesh. It was Jesus, it, Jesus was God's own Son who became flesh and dwelt among us, Right? Colossians says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And as God's son, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, and obedient life that we cannot live. And over a ministry of a period of about three years, which was displayed openly and publicly and displayed by all, he proved he was the son of God. And, and being intimately acquainted with Jesus... John the Apostle assures us uh, his apostles were. They were very intimate with Jesus. They saw him. They touched him. They intimately knew him. And they had fellowship with him, right? These disciples also proclaimed him throughout the remainder of their lives. They still do it today by their eyewitness testimony that has been recorded in the Scriptures. And the apostles did it all for a very expressed purpose. So that we too may have fellowship with them. John assures us in chapter 1 verse 3, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This shared fellowship, it's built on the rock-solid foundation of the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, and, and the written scriptures of the prophets were told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. And, and it's all founded on, on the rock himself, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And what John has made just painfully and repeatedly clear throughout this whole letter is that there is only one true fellowship. Just one true fellowship. It is Christ's church, the body of Christ. There is no alternate or substitute church. And again, as I said last week, I'm not talking about this physical location here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. 
We talk about the one true church. It is the redeemed of God. But there's no alternate. And, and we've learned that you either accept the apostolic testimony of Christ that's, re, that's recorded in the Scriptures and you're inside the church, or you reject that testimony, you add to that testimony, or you adjust that testimony to something else. And that makes you a false teacher, an antichrist, John said, even an apostate who ultimately departs Christ's church. You leave. You're either inside the church, the redeemed people of God, or you're outside the church. You either believe the truth, or you have received a lie. You've been deceived. You're either living in the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or you reside in outer darkness. There's, there's no in-between. There's no gray area in this letter. For those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul declares in Colossians that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise Jesus. And we've been added to or deposited into the community of God's redeemed people as a result that we have new life and a new union with Christ and with one another. And John exhaustively details then in this letter how and why we love his church. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother or the brethren, is still in the darkness even till now. You absolutely must love the brethren, even when they irritate you, right? You still got to love them. And, and we learned principles like you don't cause your brother to stumble, you don't speak evil, you don't scandalize, you don't slander the brethren. Instead, you and I learn to love the children of God. In fact, we love them as opposed to loving something else, which John said is the world. We're reminded in chapter 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So when the world comes calling, what do we do? We hang up, right? We hang up on it. And instead of uh, directing our affections towards the world, 1 John 3.16 tells us that we direct our love towards fellow Christians. E even to the point of laying down our lives for them. And, and when we see uh, a brother or a sister in need of the world's goods we discovered, like food and covering, we don't close our heart against them. We love not only in word and tongue, but also in deed, we're taught. 1 John 3.19 says, By this, by these actions, we know we are of the truth, because you love the brethren. 1 John chapter 4, there we discover the reason that we love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, John says. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whose he has not seen. To love Christ, you love the community of Christ. To not love the community of Christ is just incongruous. 
It, it, it doesn't fit. That, that doesn't happen. And, and you have to love the redeemed people. The, the liberal church, unfortunately, the, they'll apply these verses universally to all humanity. They'll say it's not just God's redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, they say this is just love for the whole world. And uh, their false gospel says that we're here for the purpose of loving everyone equally, no matter what they believe. By not offending with doctrine, by not taking any stand on anything, by never speaking about sin or the need to turn from sin, or to turn from false religion to follow Christ. According to them, our only objective is to alleviate temporary suffering. That would make it, as Pastor Adrian Rogers used to say, a planet that is just a little more comfortable to go to hell from. That is also incongruous. When we love, we love the church. We love those we are generous towards the church. And we're generous to anyone in need, right? Our witness to Christ is dependent on it. But to think that we just overlook every false thing out there and every lie in order to go along to get along is not congruous. You could never read 1 John and come to that conclusion that we just park all of our doctrine and our beliefs at the door so that everyone can get along. No, he says we stand on the foundation of the apostles and on the teaching of Jesus Christ. For those who don't take that stand on the truth of the apostolic doctrine, John 3.36 says the wrath of God abides on him who does not believe on the Son. So, by nature, as Christians, we're evangelistic. We are evangelistic. It's our privilege, John would indicate, to spread the good news of the gospel message to everyone, to each sinner, who, who we're rightly condemned by our sins to hell, right? Everyone on the planet has earned condemnation. But God made a single and exclusive path of reconciliation through His Son's blood atonement. The substitution, remember we studied that. That there was a substitution on our behalf and it was done in blood. It was by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. He lived the obedient life that we have not. We have been sinners. He has redeemed us through His blood by trusting in Him. Trusting in His resurrection. And uh, the, as people who believe the Word of God concerning Jesus Christ, and people who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are deposited by the Holy Spirit into this community of redeemed. We were baptized or deposited or immersed into the church by the Holy Spirit. Because of that, we love them. We are all redeemed through the same blood. We are all indwelt through the same Spirit, by the same Spirit. We are all one community. The church, ecclesiology, the study of the church. You, you look through 1 John, you cannot get around his love for the brethren. His love for the church. And we love because God first loved us. And this is love in, in John's theology here. That as Christ's ambassadors, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. To go out into the world and reconcile people to Jesus Christ. That's our, our ministry. That's our purpose. That's why we're here to declare Jesus Christ. That's why God, by the way, by indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, that's why He made us new creatures, right? 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, I love this passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. But it continues. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all of these are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Isn't that great? And it says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though we were making an appeal, as though God were making an appeal through us. This is the appeal. We beg you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Then he finishes that passage. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through him, through Christ. Well, in our attempts to reconcile the world to Jesus Christ, reconcile the world to God the Father through Jesus Christ as well, John also taught us that in our efforts... There's going to be others who are going to try to thwart that, right? A lot in this, in this letter uh, about Satan and his, what we might call, minions. He has minions that infiltrate the church. John spoke in depth about that. He refers to them as false teachers, as antichrists, and deceivers who preach a different and false gospel. A different Jesus. And, and it was a Jesus not declared by the apostles. wasn't founded on apostolic doctrine. It wasn't based on eyewitness testimony either. And, and, and their Jesus was one that was pliable, bendable, right? They could bend him where they wanted to, to bend him. And, and the false teachers would distort or bend Jesus into something that he is not. They would say, he's not God who became flesh. He was not God incarnate. He's a man, he was a good man who became God at one point in time. And, and after becoming God, now Jesus gave us a template for the rest of us to follow. So that we too can become gods, right? And we found out that that's belief system is evident in lots of places. That's in Mormonism. That's in Jehovah's Witnesses. That's in the prosperity gospel. We see that they believe that Jesus is a template of what we're going to become. No. No, we are never going to be Jesus. He is the only begotten Son of God. Others preach a Jesus that, that instead of rising from the pages of Scripture, it's a Jesus that they have fabricated in their own minds. They have made Him up. They have created Him themselves. They bent him into something and distorted him into something that has become a false gospel. The Apostle John also warns that many of these false versions of Jesus that are pliable, that are bendable, they're compatible with the world. Many of these false versions, versions of Jesus are compatible with the world. And those false teachers uh, that preach him would gladly conform Jesus to the world, to its lusts and its, to its desires. First John 4, 5, we learned 
they, meaning the false teachers, are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. I mean, they sounded just like the world. And, and what else happened? Do you remember? It said the world listens to them. The world likes them so much that they say, we want some more of that. Give us some more of that type of Jesus. He's palatable. And they preach a Jesus that's palatable to the world, so the world listens to them. Huge crowds are drawn, but nobody ever gets saved. Nobody gets reconciled. Because the ministry of reconciliation, it isn't going on, because nobody is is told that they need to repent, meaning turn from sin and turn to Christ. It's like two faces of the same coin. Repentance is turning away and turning to. You can't have turning from without turning to Jesus. The false teachers preach a Christ that that doesn't ask anyone to change your lives. You can just go on as there are. You can go on in your sin. But John says, no, you can't. Remember in in this letter we learned unequivocally that, that you can't know Christ and then just continue in any type of sin without restraint. The Holy Spirit is going to restrain sin within us. You, you are a new creature. You have different desires. You're learning continually through Scripture. We all are. We all still are. This process doesn't end. Throughout our whole lives, we're continuing to try to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it is a struggle. As you can see, even the Apostle Paul had that struggle, right? In the passage in Romans 7 we read earlier. But, but you just can't go on sinning, or as John used the phrase, practicing sin. Instead, genuine Christians, John says, they purify themselves. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself, just as Christ is pure. Then he adds, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Again, you got black and white. Some who want to practice righteousness, some who want to practice sin. What's in your heart? What, what are you trying to follow? Who are you trying to follow? Are you trying to follow sin? Or are you trying to follow Christ? And John indicates that when the biblical apostolic truth is taught concerning this, that Christians are going to perk up, right? They're going to perk up, the radar is going to be on, and they're going to listen because chapter 2 assured us that we have something. We have a gift from God. What is it? It's anointing, right? We have the anointing that makes us perk up and turn on to Scripture. We want to conform to what we see in Scripture, and that anointing draws us to appreciate the truth of apostolic doctrine. And, and we love Scripture. Christians love the Bible. It troubles us sometimes what we see because we see we don't measure up a lot of the times. But we love it. Oh, that's good. That's righteous. That's truth. We love Scripture. And in, in chapter 4, verse 6, John wrote, We, meaning the twelve apostles in that context, we are from God... He who knows God listens to us, meaning the apostolic testimony. Then he adds, he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
So when the false teachers and the Antichrist are confronted with the sound biblical doctrine from the Bible, um, which, which, by the way, exposes their false doctrine, very problematic for them, the more the Bible is preached, the more it exposes their false doctrine, uh, they don't like it so good. I mean, well. They don't like that. And as a result, they don't listen. In fact, they not only fail to listen, they defect and go AWOL. And in effect, they love the world, they love their sin, they love themselves more than they love Christ's church. So they go back out into the world. And as such, John the Apostle prepares us, he kind of conditions us to anticipate this, expect this, especially the early church there in this context. The Antichrist, the deceivers, uh, they're not just satisfied with leaving the church by themselves, alone. They like a crowd just like everybody else likes a crowd. Don't you feel better when there's a crowd? Yeah, so do the false teachers. The false teachers liked a crowd, and they still do today, and uh, they want that audience, so they attempt to draw out of the church through their false doctrine as many people as they can, as they can, we learned. And um, it had to have been troubling for those early churches that were fledgling to get their feet off the ground. They, they were wanting to see growth. They were wanting to see the gospel go forth. And then you have conflict with false teachers, and they leave, and then they talk, and others leave with them. And uh, their growth seems kind of nullified, you know. So, oh, man, I thought we were doing good now. There's these people that believe that Jesus wasn't the Son of God that have just walked out and taken a whole bunch of people with them. So, uh, John's writing to expect this, anticipate this. In fact, I wouldn't doubt that those who left, in some locations anyhow, because this was written to many churches, I wouldn't doubt with many of them that they set up shop right across the street. And since what they spoke was appealing to the world, they might have had lots of crowds come in. In fact, the early church here, in the, as they were reading this, might have seen the birth of the first seeker-driven churches. Or places are just saying whatever people wanted to hear so that they could come in and have numbers. But Jesus and the apostles were never as concerned about maintaining crowds as they were and still are uh, about maintaining purity and preserving the truth. That is what Jesus is still concerned about. And rather than being concerned about the numbers or even, even those who left, um, we wrapped up last week discovering that John's greatest concern, his greater concern, is the purity of those who remain. That was what he was concerned with last week when we were wrapping up towards the end of chapter 5. So he commanded us in, in verse 16 to intercede in prayer for the brothers and for the sisters in Christ who were caught and trapped in sin. That, that's his concern as, he, as he's closing the letter. He's concerned about intercessory prayer. And then assured in verse 17, you know, that all unrighteousness is sin. So we're praying for any unrighteousness we see. And as we left, as we departed last week, we came to realize that intercessory prayer, it's the whole point of the passage, which, which has this difficult concept of the sin unto death. And... and 
People debate that sin unto death to no end. It goes on and on. How many discussions have you and I had over the years about what the sin unto death is? Right? What is it? Everybody debates. All Christians know that that phrase is in the Bible somewhere, right? But how many of us have actually devoted ourselves to spending time and doing what that text demands? To pray for brethren who are in unrepentant sin. We aren't actually doing what the Scripture tells us to do. We're debating something that is difficult or unclear. But intercessory, intercessory prayer... No, we don't, even, we don't even acknowledge that that verse exists or that God is calling us to purity. You mean, that passage actually has something to say about purity and interceding in prayer for one another? For, for saints who are trapped in sin? Well, I'd never really paid enough attention before to even notice that. But could you please go back to talking about what the sin unto death is? That's how we think. No. That's not what the passage is there for, and I'm not going to spend more time on that, because John doesn't spend very much time on that. He spends time on committing ourselves to obedience and to faith and to trust and to purity. That is what he focuses on in the book. But I, I, I will say, I had a legitimate question this past week. We can talk about it later if you like. Someone asked me if the sin unto death might be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Could it be that? Um, it, it could be. We don't have enough evidence with the text there to know for certain. It could be. Uh, personally, I doubt it. That's my personal opinion. And, and I don't plan on returning to that subject uh, today. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you want more information on that. Um, those things very much uh, do interest me to discuss. Um, so I'm happy to discuss it. If anything else, maybe perhaps if we have a few minutes tonight after group discipleship, we could bring up a few moments about that and why I don't think it's that. But I, but I don't think in this passage that, that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is in play. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I could be wrong. John has, throughout this letter, been warning against being deceived into forsaking and in dis, into dis, deserting and into leaving the church. Over and over again. That's why I believe that, that making a deliberate and final departure from the faith and from the fellowship of Christ's church is actually what's in view in verse 16. But in contrast, for those who remain in Christ's church, John is concerned primarily about obedience and holiness and purity. Holiness, obedience, and purity. And look with me at verse 18. It says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. Wow. So I've been told, apparently, and, and I have been told that this text actually teaches that if you are a Christian, you do not sin. You never sin. You can't sin. You probably are saying to yourself, Well, I've got a problem. Yeah. I've got a problem, too, if that's the truth. Um, because I know that I sin. I don't like it. But I know that I sin, and I know that everybody else sins, and John knows it as well. Um, 
But you aren't the only problem. If Christians can't sin, um, you not only have a problem and I not only have a problem, the text has a problem, if that's what John's trying to communicate. Because John just told us in verse 16 that Christians actually do sin to the point we're even supposed to intercede on their behalf so that they can uh, have victory over that sin. So that's not what John's talking about. In fact, not only that, but you go back to chapter 1 and verse 8. John wrote to Christians, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So that's not what John is teaching here in, in chapter 5. Uh, he even said in, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? So John's already made it very clear in this letter that Christians do sin. In a bizarre sense, that's a good thing because if Christians can't, well, we're in a heap of trouble. We're all in a heap of trouble. But not to be concerned because we know confidently from the balance of the Bible that Christians surely do sin. Take a look at Corinth. Christians sin. In fact, we sin all the time and we have that advocate with, with the Father. And uh, to state that this would mean that Christians don't sin would contradict other scriptures in this book itself. That's not what John is saying here. So what might he be intending to say when he says no one who is born of God sins? I'm going to step way out on a limb here. And I'm going to propose what John is saying in the context of verse 16. That it is no one who is born of God that can sin unto death. No one who is born unto God can sin unto spiritual death, condemnation. Instead, verse 16 says, we intercede for the brethren who do commit sins that are not unto death. And for those who sin unto death, apostatize, leave the church, defect from the faith, whatever you want to call it. For those persons, verse 16 says, we're not even required to pray for them. They've stepped out of the fellowship of God. They've left. They've apostatized. Meaning, they're, they're not within our influence or control. We, they're in God's sphere now. And He's going to decide if they're children of God, He's either going to discipline them and drive them back into the church, or if they're not a believer, that's tough. That's tough. Um, but having made a, a finally deliberate departure from Christ's church, they've sinned, I would propose, unto death. They've just, they've just left the church in the rearview mirror. And they I'm done with that. We've run into people that do that, right? Just gone. And uh, they, they've committed sin unto death, spiritual death, even if their physical death is delayed by a few decades, right? We don't know who they are. We can't see people's hearts. We're always hoping that people will be restored. They went out of us. They were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out of us so it would be manifest or demonstrated they are not of us. They left. What I think causes this view I'm proposing to receive support is the balance of verse 18. If taken in the way that I'm saying, and I'm not sure that I'm right on this, if taken this way, it would read like this. 
we know that no one who is born of God sins unto death. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Do you see the preservation there? They don't leave the church. He who is born of God does not sin unto death and make a final departure and radical departure from the faith, but, but God keeps him, and the evil one won't touch him. What John's talking about here is the preservation of the true Christian by the power of the Father. And, and this is incredibly, everything I read on this, incredibly difficult Greek language in these last verses. Very difficult to translate into English. Some of the most difficult in the New Testament. And, and, and there's quite a lot of discussion to how this passage should read. Uh, I really like the rendering of what's called the Net Bible. That is the New English Translation. Uh, it was compiled by professors at, at Dallas Seminary, which, which has some of the finest linguists, uh, Greek and Hebrew scholars in the world. And uh, Gerald got a copy of it mailed to him last week. I'm so covetous. <laughs> That's sin, isn't it? Got to work on that. But, but I, I read this in the Net Bible, and it renders it this way. It says, We know that everyone fathered by God does not sin. But God protects the one he has fathered, and the evil one cannot touch him. I like that. I like that. So in this case, a Christian can't sin unto spiritual death because God has has sealed him, fathered him, given the indwelling Holy Spirit to protect him, and preserves him. Satan can't touch him. He can't touch him with finality. Don't don't get thrown off by by that word touch. Can't touch him. Uh, Don't be confused because... Some of us see that, yeah, Satan can touch you, right? He, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter warns us of that, even of Christians, right, to be, be aware of that. And uh, we know that within God's sovereignty, Satan is permitted to test believers, even Job. That, that can happen, right? And uh, sometimes the testing's even severely. But the word touch here, uh, in the Greek language, is called haptomai. This word means to attach oneself to. It means to fasten to or adhere to. And uh, the term actually was regularly used to describe carnal intercourse. It means to attach to. Satan may be allowed to test you. He won't be permitted to attach himself to you. Because God protects you and he preserves you. Another popular interpretation uh, proposes that John is teaching here that your redeemed uh, nature can't sin, like we read earlier in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Paul says it's not actually the redeemed portion of you sinning, uh, but it's actually your flesh that's sinning. It's possible. Romans seven sixteen, I do not do the very thing I... I do the thing I do not want to do, um, I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing's present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. That's plausible. That could mean what John is trying to say here in chapter 5. That no one who is born of God is able to sin, meaning your redeemed portion of you can't sin. Um, that's fine. 
in that explanation in verse 18, your redeemed nature can't sin. Uh, I don't, I, that has merit. I don't think it fits the context as well, what we're talking about. The point of the verse is, is that God keeps you. He preserves you. And, and verse 19 says that we know we are of God. Indicating you know you're saved, right? You guys know you're saved? Amen. And, and the proof of being saved or spiritual regeneration is in fruits of the Spirit, fruits of righteousness. 1 John 2.29, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of God. And, and the greatest observable indication that we can see, we can't see people's hearts, all we can see is fruits, right? And, and the greatest evidence is a changed life. Paul says that when he, when he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have been changed. That's the evidence. And, and, and it's not a righteousness that is from ourselves. It's not something we muster up is what I'm saying. The born-again believer realizes that, that our will of doing righteous things isn't coming from us. It's coming from the Spirit of God. It is rod of God because I don't behave how I used to behave. And it isn't because I'm smarter. It's because God has redeemed me. And uh, how is that different from the righteous acts of an unbeliever? You have to admit, right, that there are a lot of unbelievers out there that are pretty nice folks. There are. And, uh, but their righteousness is not raw to the Spirit of God. They've arrived at it in a different path. Uh, usually it's not evidenced by a changed life, but sometimes. An unbeliever's source of righteousness can come from learned behavior of right and wrong. They might have grown up in a family that, that was very moral, might have even been Christian, and they were taught from an early age, this is right, this is wrong. You do this, you don't do that. So the source of their righteousness is conditioned in the home. They're taught from their youth what to do. Might be the reason that we see a lot of professing teens who profess to be Christians departing once they leave home. And that restraint isn't on them anymore. Maybe they were never received Christ. Another contributor to righteous behavior is social restraint. We've talked about this before. The threat of civil punishment keeps a lot of people in line. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to do anything that will perhaps hinder their prospering. Third, moral pride and, and the fear of being publicly shamed can keep people behaving morally. They say, you know, I don't do this and I'm better than everyone else around me who does do it. So they have this, this moral pride. A fourth contributor to artificial morality, meaning not rod of the Spirit, is false religion. Religious codes. You know, one, one day when I was given a Bible study at the state capitol up in North Dakota, I think I shared this once maybe a year ago, 
One of the state senators in there said, you know, my daughter is dating an unbeliever, but he's a really moral person. I think he was either Hindu or Buddhist in practicing. I forget which one. It's been a few years back now. But he goes, the guy's really a moral person. And I said, you bet he is. He's got to be. His salvation is depending on it, according to his belief system and his religion. He has to be moral. That's going to determine whether or not he gets reincarnated or whatever they, what he comes back as. So it's forced behavior, again, not wrought of the Spirit of God. So his religious beliefs cause him to behave morally, him or her. The born-again Christian, however, we attribute our acts of righteousness to God. Living through us. Our behavior is changed because the Holy Spirit has come in us, and it's not us that is doing it. It's a spiritual rebirth that, by which we now escaped that grip of evil. And as Paul says uh, in, in his text, talking about his re- redeemed life in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, I believe, who gets the glory? Who gets the praise? God gets the praise. So who do you attribute your godliness to? Your righteousness, who do you attribute it to? Jesus Christ. It's not your family upbringing, right? It's not learned behavior. It's not something you've done on your own. Your righteousness is because of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that. Because God said through Isaiah the prophet, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else, or the praise due me I will not share with idols. No one else gets the praise for what we are. Jesus Christ alone. And that's the most important question of your life. Do you take credit for your own righteousness, or do you see yourself righteous in Christ? Look with me at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So John closes essentially by telling the reader, I've made this whole truth about Jesus Christ, the incarnation, righteousness, all of these things, all the truth known to you. John says, I've done my job. It is now up to you. You've got the information. Every one of us here has the information. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to live by it? John says, responsibility is no longer in my hands. He's been dead nearly 2,000 years. Message is preserved. It's up to us today. It's in our hands what we're going to do with this information. And it's by the power of the gospel and this truth about Jesus Christ by which you and I have escaped the grip of the evil one. We've believed in Christ. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Even while the whole world, it says, lives, breathes, exists under the power of the devil. The whole world exists under that under him the final exhortation might seem a bit out of place almost seems looking at it initially it doesn't belong there little children guard yourselves from idols 
And we wonder, why is that there? You know, through, through the book, he hadn't talked about graven images or anything like that. Uh, I could have been tempted, actually I was tempted, spend an, old, an entire sermon next week just talking about idols, idols in America. Idols of fame and prestige, money, power. How about the idol of self? I could have gotten some traction on that one. America's eat up with self. Is it a Facebook? I think I call it self book. <laughs> but I, but the idols I think John is talking about here to guard against are not those types of idols. Uh, so they'll wait on a different text for a different day. I believe that the idolatry that John is warning us about here are those false versions or false notions about Jesus that we can be drawn away with. He's warning us about those false versions that that people want to draw us out into. Those are the idols, because a false Jesus is an idol, right? That you can worship and bow to, even if that version of Jesus doesn't even exist in Scripture. That would be an idol. And these false versions of Jesus that make people think they can remain in the world without personal change. The false notions of Jesus that don't demand holiness or righteousness or purity or even an attempt at it. The false ideas of Jesus that you know Jesus ain't all that special. He's just another one of many. One of many ways. That's an idol. That's a false Jesus. He is the only way. And rather than bowing down and worshiping Christ as Lord and God and as Savior, some people just treat Jesus rather than their God and their Savior. You see this all the time, hear it all the time. He's their buddy. Is that who Jesus is? We know he's our friend. But he is our God. So it's all these false ideas about Jesus that are offered, and many people leave the church because of them. They didn't want the version of Christ found in the Bible. They said, you know what? I can go across the street or the other side of town and find a completely different version of Jesus if I want. You can. Can you bring him out in a living from Scripture? Does he arise from Scripture? And you know that? A lot of churches I can go to, they'll accept me just as I am. I don't need to change. After reading through 1 John, studying through 1 John, is that the real Jesus? No. We have to change. We have to strive at changing. So there's all these different ideas that people can follow. People have options. We're a consumer society, aren't we? But if you follow a Jesus that does not come from Scripture, he is an idol. And all these false, view of Jesus, false views of Jesus we need to guard ourselves against. They divert ourselves away from him. They divide, divert ourselves away from one another. They focus us on ourselves and what Jesus can do for us rather than what we can do for him. And they drive people out of the church. They give people an option. What is it in your life that is causing you 
to not follow Jesus? What is it that's keeping you away from going all out, sold out for Jesus Christ? In serving Him, in giving to Him, in sharing with Him, in worshiping Him, in loving one another as He loved His church, so do we. What's preventing us from selling out wholly to Christ? Where is your time going? Where is your money going? Where are your friendships going? Where is your family going? We need to focus upon Christ. And John would say, there is nowhere else to find any hope. Let us pray. Dear Lord, what a blessing you've brought us through this book. Lord, that we can look at ourselves, see what we are, Lord God, see what we've done, see how we've offended you, Lord, and yet you love us. Lord, that you would lay down your life for us, that you would call us friends of God, Lord, that we would be made children of God through your blood, through your sacrifice, Lord, and suffering for every sin that we ever committed, Lord. Thank you for the apostles, Lord. Thank you for their witnesses. Thank you for their devotion that they lived, Lord, to face the sword, to face peril, shipwreck, scourging, crucifixion, Lord. All that they would do to put this message down for us to read. Lord God, thank you. Lord, we pray, as, as even the children sang, you know, that our, our walk talks. Lord, that we too would be that testimony, that we'd be that eyewitness testimony, Lord, even that as we see Christ alive in Scripture, that we'd be telling other people about Him. Lord, that they'd see joy, that they'd see love, Lord, even at times when necessary tears, because of our love for You, Lord, our love for one another, Lord, and, uh, and our gratitude, our thankfulness, Lord, for, for all that you've blessed us with. Lord, what a wonderful church we have. Lord, thank you for this holiday season as we go in now to Thanksgiving this, this Thursday. Lord, and as we, we th- look at all that we have, all the uh, money, all of the food, Lord, all the blessings and cars and, Lord, uh, success, all the, all the things you've blessed us, Lord, with. We're so grateful. We're so thankful. Let us honor you with what we have. Lord, thank you for today. Bless each one here and uh, as they depart, Lord, and encourage them that you truly are the Lord the God of heaven and of earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.